0: Hi, I'm Lorna Meehan, and welcome to Rebel Heroines, a podcast celebrating the rebel heroines of the Greek myths through original audio drama, poetry, book and theatre reviews, and interviews with fellow fans and creatives. In this podcast, the stereotypical and somewhat toxic heroes of the ancient world take a step back as we delve into the stories of the women who shaped their destinies, If you like your Greek myths seen through a feminist lens, enjoy creative adaptations of the classics such as the novels of Natalie Haynes and Madeline Miller and agree that Hollywood hasn't made a decent movie set in antiquity since the original Clash of the Titans, this is the podcast for you. Hello and welcome to Rebel Heroines, the podcast celebrating the women of Greek mythology and the women who write about them. This is a cheeky bonus episode where I interview Emily Hauser, author of the Golden Apple Trilogy, about her latest non-fiction novel, Ancient Love Stories. Let's get straight to it, shall we? So, let's meet Emily. Hello, Emily.
1: Hello, thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here.
0: I wanted to kick off with asking you about what inspired you to start writing about Greek mythology.
1: It's a long story because the kind of love that I've had for the classical world goes back such a long time. I started learning Latin and Greek uh, when I was 11. I, I was so lucky to be able to start those early. But even before then, I was just so passionate about the ancient world. I think for me, one of the kind of turning points was when I read Robert Graves' I, Claudius. And I think I was about 10. I think I got it in my Christmas stocking. So Father Christmas definitely knew what he was doing. <laughs> and um, I just really loved the book. I loved the immediacy of it. And I, I feel like it was kind of pretty clear for me from then, because I'd always loved writing, that historical fiction was something that I wanted to to pursue so I kind of remember always saying that I was just kind of looking for the right story and it was really when the story of the woman of Troy found me in the first year of my PhD that I just kind of was like yeah this is this is what I am going to write and and that's was kind of the way forward was cleared.
0: Ten years old reading I, Claudius, wow. Well. <laughs>
1: I know I mean I was yeah I, was, I didn't have many friends <laughs> I remember, yeah definitely I, I was a bookworm through and through I, I think the only time kind of I really had a, a harsh talking to from my mom was when I was trying to read Pollyanna under the table and it was meant to be dinner time and I was reading Pollyanna under the table and I think I must have been like yeah six or seven but I just wouldn't stop reading so yeah I lo- always loved books.
0: Brilliant. The Golden Apple Trilogy, which I really enjoyed, I loved all three of them. I wanted to ask, did you know that you wanted to write about these specific characters first or... Did you kind of have that golden apple link and then they just kind of revealed themselves organically? Like,
1: Yeah. So, well, as I mentioned, it really started with the first book, For the Most Beautiful. Um, and I was in my first year of my PhD in classics at Yale and I was taking a course. And during that course, we read Margaret Atwood's Penelope ad, which is a reworking. So good. So good. Really recommend it. And it's a retelling of the Odyssey from Penelope's point of view. And I just sort of suddenly had this moment where I realized that no one had done that for the Iliad, which is, of course, the other epic poem by Homer. And that the women of the Iliad, there had been sort of course rewritings of Helen, but I was really interested in Briseis and Chryseis, who are the two slave women who start out the action of the Iliad, but who really are marginalized in the Iliad. And they kind of are, are marginalized in the stories that we tell about at the Trojan War, and they just really weren't known. And I just felt like, wow, this is my story. I want to I want to tell their story and show how important they are for our understanding of the Iliad, for our understanding of the Trojan War, and what happens when we tell the myths from their point of view, because it just completely turns on its head what we think we know about these heroes and these stories. And then once I'd written that book, I knew I kind of wanted to take it further and do a trilogy. And so I kind of saw that there was this theme that's kind of trickling through Greek myth around the golden apples. And I just was like, actually, each one of these golden apples, these kinds of amazing, legendary, mythical objects, they're associated with women. And they're associated with amazing kind of subversive women who are really making history, uh, making Greek myth. The way became clear. And I was like, okay, it's going to be a trilogy. And it's going to be each of the the three major myths around the golden apples. So it just happened very organically.
0: It's so true with Bryce Ace and Christ Ace as well that yeah, they have such a massive impact on the war, and yet in the originals, like I don't know, is it less than a hundred lines between them or something? Like like considering they make such a pivotal yeah. impact on the novel.
1: I mean, yes, so for readers who don't know, basically that the poem begins, I mean, it's the it's the kind of foundational text of Western literature, and it begins with a quarrel between two so-called heroes. I'm putting it in inverted commas, mm-hmm. Achilles and Agamemnon, but they're quarreling over two enslaved women who have been taken captive during the war. One of them, her husband, has been killed, her brothers have been killed and they've been taken as as sex slaves and they're arguing which one of them gets which woman so this is like the whole scene that kind of sparks the conflict that creates the the epic Um, And yet Briseis, yeah, as you mentioned, she actually doesn't even talk. She just Mm. gets kind of shipped off uh, about halfway through the first book. So a couple of hundred lines in, she gets shipped off. And Briseis basically gets kind of traded like a pawn back and forth between the men. Um, She has like one kind of major speech, but that's it. And uh, otherwise you just kind of see her in these kinds of throwaway one-off lines where it's, And then Achilles went to bed with Briseis. And (laughs) I just felt like that really kind of uh, flattened the tragedy of her experience and the the way that she kind of exemplifies the cost of the war, that these kinds of bickering heroes, where they're kind of quarrelling about their glory. But like, you know, for her, this is real life. This is serious. This is tough and difficult. And we needed to talk about it.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. And with Atalanta and is it Admete? Is that how you say it? Ooh. yeah
1: Admete actually is yeah. Greek but Admiti would be probably how we would anglicize yeah.
0: it yeah I like that we you know, we get to have these stories of these two women who get to go on adventures and have like their kind of heroic moment in the sun kind of thing and i knew about the the trojan women in Atalanta beforehand but i didn't know much about Admete. and i enjoyed like where her story went and i just wanted to ask if you have any plans in the future to, to write about other like kind of lesser known women in greek myths like the women that maybe we, we don't know much about or that you know other women that have kind of got sidelined
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, that's such a a good point, because like her story comes up in kind of a much later source, and she becomes a kind of a figure uh, later on. And I think it's so easy to gravitate towards the more obvious characters. And that's kind of, I think, why I really enjoyed Briseis and Criseis, because they're just not very well known. And the same for Admeti. Of course, she interacts. With the Amazons, this is in my in my third novel, and the Amazons are, are very well known. Yeah. Um, so you get that a uh, kind of nice interaction between a less well known female character and these kind of very, for for better or worse, kind of villainized but also mythologized, fantasized uh, female warriors. But yeah, in terms of future projects, I I do have kind of a book that's in the pipeline. It's not fiction, it's nonfiction. But yes, it's definitely looking, it's kind of, again, doing that oscillating between diving into some of the better known figures and looking at them from a different perspective, but then also uncovering some of the women who you've never heard of, but you really should have. So I feel like that's really important and, and interesting.
0: Another book to look forward to. Great. Why do you think there's been such a resurgence in in terms of Greek mythology and you know, like this kind of genre of, of retellings by women? And what is your favourite book in the genre so far?
1: The why is kind of a million dollar question. Um, I, I do think that there's something to be said about the the power and the resonance of these stories, and and that is obviously not just something about this moment in time. Um, Troy and the Trojan War, in particular, it has been uh, received and translated and adapted for for centuries, millennia. So it's a really enduring myth. I think what's different about what's happening now is that. Uh, women writers are really stepping forward and are taking the voices uh that are maybe in a canon that feels familiar and it feels important and significant. So you don't have to kind of justify why these myths matter. But what you can do is you can take the voices that have been silenced, and then you can put them forward. And that then becomes a kind of intervention into this canon that we kind of thought we were comfortable with. And I think that that it just it has a kind of unending appeal, because you're doing this kind of simultaneous game of just like these incredible myths that so many people love and and are just so powerful and enduring but then you're putting a new spin on it and it's a spin that really speaks to our time it's something about kind of women stepping forward recovering women's voices telling it how it is and I think that that is just so important
0: absolutely and I think it was Natalie Haynes that I read was saying When someone asked her, I think it was a male academic, I asked her like bothering like telling the the women's stories and her answer was like, because they were also in them. And if you only get, if you only talk to like 50% of the characters, you know, that's only 50% of the story. So the fact that I think this genre can definitely keep on giving, you know, that we can get as many classics out of it as as the first time round, I think. Yeah. What's your favourite book? that you've read in this genre
1: yeah so my my favorite book I really love Madeline Miller's Circe. Um, I mean I think because I'm a Homerist and so yeah. in my kind of academic job um, at, at the University of Exeter kind of my my, my academic focus is on Homeric poems and so I think uh, anything that is to do with Homer I just I really enjoy and I think she did such a great job of in a way, I'm kind of contradicting the first half of my answer. She did a great job of not just making it about Homer. And so it was kind of a, a lot about this, the wider myth around Cersei and all of the kind of different receptions. And I just felt like uh, that worked so well. And yet at the same time, that kind of speaking back against Homer was was so much fun for me to read, both as, as an author, uh, a novelist, but also as an academic. I, I really enjoyed that.
0: is probably my favourite as well. I like... When Madeline Miller was talking about how, yeah, in the original Homer, that Cersei, even though she has the power to turn him into a pig, just kind of like kneels at his feet in awe and trepidation, you know, and and then it's like really, and I like that in Cersei, you know, there's this whole other undertone going on of like I'm not afraid of you, I'm uh, I have an, you know, I have this whole different agenda going on, and I like I like that we got to find out what happened to her before and after the hero turned up. So tell us about the new book, Ancient Love Stories. So it's this is a, a nonfiction anthology. I'd like to throw in to this first question about the book. Why do you think there are so few like happy endings in terms of love matches in like ancient mythology, ancient history? It just doesn't seem <laughs> yeah. to be a thing. So, yeah, I'd like to sort of get your, your take on that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, so this book that is coming out, uh, in the next couple of weeks is called Ancient Love Stories, and it's a, a collection, uh, a retelling of some of the greatest love stories from history. So it, it starts with Sappho, um, and maybe we can talk more about her later, but she's, uh, sort of the first female poet of ancient Greece and, uh, really kind of ignites the, the genre of love poetry and talks about uh, love for women in this kind of really incredible, tangible, erotic way. But then we kind of meander through all kinds of different relationships, and yes, many of them are tragic. Um, <laughs> so we have a, Ro- a Roman emperor and his uh, love for a young man who tragically dies very early on in his life. We have, of course, Antony and Cleopatra, the the kind of ultimate uh, sort of love love fatality. And then we kind of wind through history. We go through the Taj Mahal um, and its creation as a kind of an object of this incredible loss for uh, Mumtaz Mahal by Shah Jahan. Um, and then we end, and I feel like this is kind of, for me, this is kind of programmatic, because, you know, everyone wants a happy ending when we're talking about love stories. So we end with a happy ending, a, a kind of beautiful, very quiet romance between a, an incredible man, Ignatius Sancho, who was initially sold into slavery. He was of African descent, sold into slavery, but then he was uh, sent to the uh, to England and became a servant and eventually was freed and became the first man, the first African to um vote in a a British election. And he had a kind of wonderful, quiet domestic relationship with his wife Anne. Um, So I feel like for me that was very much sort of wanting to also have an insight into this kind of different world from from these kinds of grandiose emperors and (laughs) kings and queens. And it's
0: like sometimes the tragedy happens first and then the nice thing afterwards.
1: Exactly. It doesn't have to be that way. Um, and I, I think for me, what was really key in bringing this collection together was, and kind of a key word for me was diversity. And and that, of course, was diversity of uh, kind of all kinds of different cultures, all kinds of historical time periods, different races and backgrounds, uh, sexualities. But it was also about diversity of experience of love, because every relationship is different, and some relationships go up in flames some are kind of uh, dramatic and tragic and some are very quiet and for me it was kind of getting that oscillation where you kind of go through the fireworks but then you end in that kind of calm and I feel like that hopefully will resonate with a lot of readers that that love kind of takes on all of these different forms.
0: Yeah absolutely cool so let's hear some extracts and I think yeah let's let's start with Sappho I think because you know she she sort of kicked it all off for us in terms of the love poetry
1: okay so this is Sappho and Sappho is the first story in the collection so we are kind of opening up ancient love stories dawn Greece summer the air smelled of violets pink fingers of sunlight crept over the horizon already hot reflecting off the white rocks of the Greek island A woman stood on the cliff edge, her toes whispering the air, her sandals tracing the stone, playing with the edge between rock and sky. Her gauzy tunic catching on the sea breeze, tugging her like a ship's sail, threatening to slip at any moment into the white foam below. Her name was Sappho, and how she got here is a love story. But it's not the kind you might think. This is a story of a woman who had a gift. She knew how to write about love, In the world of ancient Greece, where women were meant to idolise men and were told to stay silent, seen and not heard, her love was different. She loved women passionately, openly, and she was able to turn what she felt into fierce words of poetry. These words would speak to thousands of people and become famed across one of the most powerful nations on earth. They would be sung at banquets and written down on scraps of papyrus that were sent on ships and hoarded in libraries across the world of the ancients. These words would see Sappho embroiled in rebellion in the teetering, overcrowded cities of the rocky island of Lesbos. They would cast her into exile across the glittering seas of the Aegean to the ends of the earth and back again. They would ask her to defy everything that was expected of a woman and climb to dizzying heights of fame and success before falling to the repute of a ridiculed prostitute. They would see her challenging ideas about sex and sexuality and speaking out about love in a way no one had ever done before. Her words would become immortal even as it took her to her death, so yes, this is a love story with a difference, and it would change the way we talk about love forever. Ooh.
0: she's got a lot going on, hasn't she? Safa, like she had. Yeah, you know, it wasn't until I read a novel about her that I sort of realised, you know, she had this whole sort of exile thing going on, and how. Mm. How revered she was, and that she like hung out with Aesop Is it as well? Yeah,
1: yeah. That I think that's kind of uh, fictional on the part. But I think what the novel you're referring to might be Erica Jong's Sappho's Leap. Is that the one? That's
0: it. That's the one. Yeah.
1: Yes. Yeah, it. so so that that is kind of a fictionalised intervention, uh, and that was something that was but was really common in antiquity as well. Was that, that idea of kind of imagining famous people meeting each other? Yeah, and um, <laughs> there is kind of one poet who the ancients just loved imagining. Sappho interacting with which was Alcaeus who was a kind of contemporary of her and a male poet and there's this really great uh, vase painting where uh, from from antiquity from around the 5th century BC where you get the figures of Sappho and Alcaeus together painted on on the side of a pot and Alcaeus is there strumming on his lyre. You can see out of his mouth, there's trailing the, the word, the song, the sound of his song. So he's trailing, ooh, out of his mouth. And Sappho isn't saying anything. And I feel like to me, that is such a kind of good representation of the way that kind of, especially women's voices just tended to be silenced in the ancient world. So Sappho yeah. is so complicated because she was so important. And yet somehow she was also silenced in a lot of ways in comparison to her male peers.
0: Mm. Yeah, so it's great that you start this whole book with her. Wonderful. Great stuff. And yeah, let's hear about the Theban band. I'm intrigued. This is probably wrong, but are these where they would like marry the soldiers to each other so they'd fight harder? Or I got that confused with like the Spartans or something. You know?
1: <laughs> Yeah, well, it's, that's the rough idea. So it's not that they would marry each other, but that they basically, in classical Greece, there was a kind of an unusual culture that normalized and absorbed and in, in this sense, utilized the really deep, passionate relationships between men. So it was kind of expected that older males would take younger male lovers and that that was kind of really culturally, was super central. And what the Sacred Band of Thebes did, um, and this is happening in, in kind of the fourth century BC, they took this one step further. The logic kind of was, and philosopher and Plato even comments on this, like it's, it's totally logical. The logic was that if you're in love with someone, you would do anything for them. And so if you've got men who were in love, and, you know, these men are also soldiers, um, then why not recruit male couples and utilize their passion, their dedication for each other and, and to make them fight to the death. And this, this uh, band of 150 couples of, of male warriors was kind of one of the uh, most effective fighting forces of its day. It was just like at the top in, in military terms until, unfortunately, they got wiped out by the troops of Alexander the Great, which is just really, yeah, it's really tragic. But it is just an amazing kind of love story. And it's just really kind of of its moment, of its time. So, yeah, it's fantastic.
0: Brilliant. So do you want to read us an extract from the Theban Band?
1: Yes, absolutely. So... What I will do is I will do a little bit from the beginning and a little bit from the end because it surrounds the story and it describes kind of the archaeology that kind of creates some context around this story that it kind of sounds a little fantastical, but it's actually real. So and that's kind of one of the things I love about this is that interaction between this these stories that sound like legend, but they're actually true. With a muffled thud, the last body hit the dry soil. The Theban gravedigger stood back, wiping his forehead damp in the blazing heat of summer trying not to breathe in the smell of sweat and mud and sweet rotting flesh, trying to block out the sound of the flies with their incessant greedy humming and the hopeful whining of the crows. He cast an expert's eye over the rows of bodies laid out before him, a job well done for the kind of job it was. They were laid out in the formation of battle, soldiers lined up side by side as they had been in the final terrible war that had taken them down, all 300 of them, young men who had barely started shaving some of them, Others, their skin latticed with silver scars, their hair threaded with grey, some with children of their own. Hard to look at, even for a professional. His spades beared the ground, scattering the first heap of dirt over the bodies, hiding them from view. And a wry thought came to him, as wry thoughts do when you're digging graves. No one, in years to come, would believe that this was, in fact, a lover's tomb. Two thousand years of winds had blown dirt across the plain of Kyrenea. The tomb that stood where Thebes' legendary warriors had fallen, cut down by the troops of Macedon, was lost beneath centuries of dust. And then, on a cloudless June day in 1818, a horse riding the dirt track that crossed the wide open field stumbled, a stone jutting from the road. The horse's rider, a young English architect and enthusiast of antiquity named George Ledwell Taylor, leapt to the ground feverish with excitement. In his trembling hands, he held an ancient Greek travel guide written by Pausanias in the 2nd century CE, the equivalent of a tourist's cheat sheet to the greatest monuments of ancient Greece. The Lion of Chironea, As you approach the city, you can see the mass grave of the Thebans who died in the battle against Philip. There's no inscription, just a monument of a lion to represent the men's courage. Taylor had struck not exactly gold, but just what he was looking for. It was the find of a lifetime. He and a couple of friends and locals set frantically to work, digging at the block of stone with their riding crops, scrabbling away at the earth. What emerged was not only the colossal stone lion six feet high that had topped the Thebans' tomb, but an extraordinary mass burial, almost 300 men laid in battle formation. Anyone who had read even a little Greek history would immediately connect the dots. Here, clearly, was the grave of the sacred band of Thebes. But this find, astonishing as it was, had one more breathtaking secret to reveal. A nod, perhaps, to the extraordinary love that had bound the sacred band together and the way they died side by side for the love of their city and each other. For whoever dug the grave had introduced a detail not found anywhere else and not even known to those who recorded the ancient texts. Several of the couples were buried holding hands.
0: Oh, it's that was beautiful thank you it's um it's this really lovely mixture of you know the heart of the story and then the history and the modern world coming in going I want to dig all this up and see what it's about and then like oh just that little detail of hey these were Mm. were people and they were in love and Mm you know, the, the, the tragedy of war and mm, there's a lot going on in there. Wonderful. Thank you.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, no, I feel like I, I, you know, I researched this, I wrote it and yet still kind of when I, I read that story, I just kind of get shivers because it's just, there's something about that deep connection to the past and, and that immediacy that we have when we kind of look back at these stories. As you say, you realise these are real people and it's just, it is an incredible connection that we can have through these kinds of stories. And I just feel like the Sacred Band, they just deserve to be so much better are known so it's they're not a story that a lot of people know. Yeah,
0: wonderful. So, when and where can we get this
1: book? So it's out on twenty eighth of September, and uh, you can get it online. You can get it in bookstores uh, on your high street and your local independent bookstore which I would always encourage um so it should be it should be everywhere available but you can also visit my my website as well and there you can get further uh, information about it and a little bit of kind of behind the scenes details as well
0: wonderful thank you so much Emily for sharing some extracts from your new book with us that was wonderful thank you
1: thank you so much for having me it was a pleasure
0: thank you so much for listening if you enjoyed this episode please go back and listen to previous episodes please like and subscribe please share with people who might be interested and if you'd like to contribute with poetry or audio drama to future episodes do let me know you can email me at lorna at gmail.com i'll be back later than planned in october with a crossover episode with the goddess project podcast unpacking artemis so look out for that and i'll see you soon